Hello, and welcome back to What's Next, a podcast exploring the technology of tomorrow and what it means for us today. I'm your host, Ryan Lawler. The Internet of Things and blockchain are two segments of technology that have a lot of hype around them right now. But what happens when those two technologies come together? For example, what if machines could pay other machines for services independently without human intervention? Allison Cliff Jennings is the founder of Filament, one of our portfolio companies, which is already enabling that kind of machine-to-machine transaction. Let's learn more. Thanks for joining us here at the What's Next podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, to start, let's. how about you tell us what Filament is and yeah, what you guys do? Absolutely. So Filament is about six years old as a company, and we're focused on this marriage of hype, which I mean by bringing the Internet of Things concept, which is fairly hype-driven uh, today in the tech scene, as well as the blockchain, which is also very hype-driven. So you put these together. Fundamentally, underneath all of the hype, there's some... Uh, sophisticated technology that we're excited about delivering into the industrial space. So the, the big fortune 100, 1000 companies of the world. Cool. Yeah. So, um, I want to get into the hype. Oh yeah. I want to get into <laughs> what's real and what's hype and sure. you know, all of that. I think that there's a lot of fodder for conversation there. Um, but, uh, maybe how did you get started in this area specifically in this idea of the industrial internet of things and all of these sort of connected machines? Yeah, you know, we had a kind of a journey to get here. Uh, we didn't wake up one day saying this is what we want to do. Um, instead, we had actually, and this was six years ago in 2012, we crowdfunded a project that was focused on makers and DIY enthusiasts to allow a little device to be connected and to build its own mesh network. And so that was what we started with. And this was just a passion of mine. I was actually working down here in the city in the mission for another company, and I got the hardware bug. And I said, I have to leave because I need to do this startup. And long story short, we crowdfunded this project. It was successful. We raised a seed round of funding based off that. But we found that um, that industrial customers actually wanted this more and had a bigger appetite to purchase than makers. Makers, I love them to death. I'm one myself. But they'll buy one kit and they'll play with it for a year. <laughs> And that makes it very hard to actually build a company upon. So uh, fast forward several years, we um, we are now focused exclusively on the industrial space. And even um, that was kind of the first phase of our adjustment. Then we had a second phase that introduced the blockchain to solve a fundamental engineering problem that we had um, with the industrial IoT space we, had, we were working in. So when you talk about connectivity and, and wireless connectivity of these things and then how it gets applied to the industrial space, like what was the aha moment there and how did you find out that like this was a problem that needed to be solved and you had technology that could do that? Yeah, you know, we actually started getting phone calls from R&D groups in these large Fortune 1000s, which was pretty shocking for a team of like five at the time. So, you know, we, we got a call from one major um, industrial vehicle uh, construction company who said, uh, this is the R&D co- you know, group at this company, and we've been trying to build our own wireless mesh network for sensors for six months, and we failed. And so our C-suite has told us to buy off the shelf. We bought a bunch of kits. Yours is one of them. And we had yours running in like an afternoon. So we want to talk to you about doing collision avoidance between vehicles on a work site. And we're sitting here going, that's awesome and terrifying all at <laughs> once because it's not industrial ruggedized. It is not, it doesn't even have an enclosure. It hasn't even been like FCC certified. It's a hobbyist platform. 
but it showed us that there's a real need for connectivity, at least at the time there was. Now it's starting to become a little more ubiquitous, but back then it was very, very telling just how difficult it was to connect infrastructure. So we moved into the industrial space based off of that demand. Right. When you yeah. say you caught the hardware bug, like yeah. what, what does that mean? Like, were you a mechanical engineer, just an enthusiast? So I've got a computer science background. I have a degree in computer science and, and the, the school I went to had kind of a dual engineering, like electrical and computer science. So it was a little bit more hardware focused. It wasn't a dual degree, but it was called CSE, computer science engineering. And, um, and so I'd tinkered with it a little bit, but I always spent all my time in software. And so when I got the hardware bug, that was around the era where it was easy to start to get involved in microcontrollers, which traditionally is very difficult. Um, but because of the works of like Arduino and some of these other kind of maker platforms, it became easier and easier. And so I really wanted to actually build something with that because it was so empowering. It reminded me of early days of programming when I felt like I could build anything and I wanted to explore that again. And what are the, I mean, what are the needs in terms of uh, getting this stuff approved and especially in these highly regulated industries Mm -hmm. and, and making something that, can be used in that environment. Yeah, so industrial is a completely different world than consumer, right? And that's even more, that's even different from like maker, which is kind of like no rules in a lot of ways, or very slim rules. In the industrial space, you deal with the harshest conditions, which can be a, a challenge from an engineering standpoint. You're not just dealing with, does my network packet get from A to B or A to B to C if you're doing mesh networking, but you have to deal with these certifications called HALT and HAS testing, which is shock and drop. So vibration, shock, smashing it with like a mallet, dropping it from like 10 feet or five feet onto concrete on every different corner. So like 16 drops, just a a whole different realm of like ruggedization, not to mention the FCC and regulatory cert around radio transmission, which is everyone has to do, but um, you also have to do with your rugged enclosure to still make sure transmits well. There was one particular project where we had to make sure it would work in 180 mile an hour winds because it was a product that would be used in hurricanes for monitoring power poles being vertical or not. So it was a challenge from an engineering standpoint, but also incredibly fun. And it's there's something very fundamentally satisfying as an engineer to see that exist. And we know, I know we'll use it again at some point. In fact, we already think we know where we'll start to use it again in our new space. Right. So you started in connectivity. Where's the blockchain part come in yeah so you know moving from maker to industrial was our first kind of a phase shift if you will we had a second phase shift as a company which is moving from industrial into um, this specialized version of that we had a fundamental engineering problem and since we're pretty technical team we we focus on those and try to solve them for better or worse i sometimes think it's a curse but uh we fundamentally had this issue where some of our interested customers wanted to pay for our product for the use of it not necessarily own it so in the corporate world which was news to us because again we came from makerspace there's a concept called capital expense and operational expense right They wanted to purchase this as an OPEX. They did not want to have it on their balance sheet. They did not want to have to train people. They didn't want to like end of life it and recycle it, e-waste. They just wanted to pay for use of our sensor network. So we're like, okay, I guess that's fine. I guess we'll just have them check in with a server, Netflix or Spotify style. And they said, oh, by the way, and some of these customers said, you know, we're using these in places where there isn't always cloud access or internet access, like on an open pit mine in the Australian outback. So we had this major problem, which was how do you enforce a recurring revenue model on a physical device on or offline? And through a bunch of deep research, you know, this is a, this is a very deep problem in computer science and distributed systems theory. Um, it turns out that the blockchain solves a lot of that. And so we brought the blockchain in as a p- component of a platform that would allow us 
to let these little devices self-enforce their own contractual agreements. And thus came about this new capability that Filament really has huddled around specifically since then. But it was very much like a scratch and itch, we have a problem. Right. But yeah. you were familiar with sort of blockchain, or at least the theories behind it, Indeed. like long before that. Indeed, yes. So, I'm so, one of those early nerds. So, so talk me through sort of your background in that area and how you got interested. And sure. you know, was this kind of like the maker story where it was just kind of like you were nerding out on? Yeah, you know, it's funny. My spouse jokes with me because there's this white binder have at home, which I started putting together around 2006, 2007, which has a bunch of like really strange, like crypto libertarian, cypherpunk, like white papers and stuff. And this was pre Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin's 2009. And so this had like uh, David Chalm, Chalmian eCash. It had some early um, uh, Ryan Fugger who made this early version of Ripple. It wasn't our Ripple that we know of today, but it's it was the Ripple protocol. Very cool. Um, lots of very interesting things that I was just very fascinated about the ability to transact as a protocol, making economics a protocol, a lot like I had learned with data and network protocols. You know, every computer science major learns about the OSI model and all these things and, you know, stacks. But then it's like no one really has ever talked about the e-commerce side or the commerce, I should say, the economic side. But what e-commerce did for the internet is like obviously just groundbreaking, right? We have Alibaba, we have Amazon, we have eBay, Craigslist, so many others that simply wouldn't exist as companies if e-commerce didn't exist within the internet. So my, my big question was, what would it look like if hardware, you know, physical devices had the ability to transact instead of just communicate, but to actually transact economically, exchange value? That was completely compelling to me. And, and I think the right word is that it haunted me for a while. It wouldn't leave me alone. I would sleep, I'd wake up thinking about it. I would go to sleep thinking about it, think about it when I drive. Um, when I walk, etc. So this white binder still exists. It has a bunch of old notes with my, you know, younger self. This was quite a while ago. Um, that's been an inspiration. And I figured, you know, I, or I hope that someday I would be able to use that or at least what I had learned. You know, we didn't really invent anything here. Um, to a large part, we've used a lot of existing systems and built our own solution. Um, we have a little bit of invention and some, some IP around that, but fundamentally, we're standing on the shoulders of giants, the early, early ones, the pre-Bitcoin ones. And uh, I'm very pleased that it was able to make itself back into our product today. That's great. Yeah. So so the idea now is that these machines can transact. Correct. They don't need a, a human in between them. Like they're just talking to each other. That's right. Which is pretty crazy. It is, yeah. So let's talk about the hype. Sure. Right? <laughs> let's get into um, it. And, Should I put some waiters on? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Some gloves. <laughs> It's pretty deep, I know. So. No, I, I, I mean, I, I think that um, everything that you've explained seems like very practical ways of building technology to solve real issues. And yet, because of the Bitcoin hype, because of the crypto ups and downs, um, ICOs, there's a lot of yeah. the ICOs, there's a lot of skepticism um, about blockchain. Um, there's a lot of interest in it, but there's also a lot of skepticism specifically because there are so many of these projects that now just look like BS. Um, so uh, how does that affect what you do or does it at all? It does. It's it's frustrating in many ways because we have to parse through all that and try to somehow establish or maintain our credibility in the midst of you know companies raising $40, 50000000 million in a token sale in a matter of minutes, but then going away a year later or joking, you know, tweeting about Lamborghinis. And it's just, it's, it's, um, frustrating as a technologist because we want to solve problems. Like our team and our company, our ethos is very much around solving hard problems. That is what drives us money and value and returns and, you know, exits are 
you know, maybe I'm breaking the rules saying this, they are secondary to our company solving hard problems. That is where we get our satisfaction. And so in some ways, we've kept our head very low and tried to stay off the radar. We do bring up the term blockchain. We call it the B word sometimes, right? Because in many situations, we won't use that word when we're talking about what we do. We'll talk about value exchange, economics, e-commerce, machine economy, these other terms that are essentially the same thing. But we kind of avoid the whole like, oh, are you selling tokens? And it's like, oh, Lord, no, we're not. Well, you know, we, we are not. Now, it's true, and I have to be honest with myself and with you all that like, I do want a fundamental um, machine medium of exchange. I would love a machine currency because that actually lets us realize completely what we're trying to build. But from a regulatory standpoint, we're not there yet. So what currency are you actually exchanging right now? So we've completely punted on that and we are blockchain agnostic. So we can support multiple blockchains simultaneously. We're like a hardware wallet. If you're familiar with the hardware wallet concept, Um, there are hardware wallets for people, Trezor, Ledger, some others. We are a hardware wallet for machines. So we can support Bitcoin, Ethereum, any of the other number of public blockchains that are coming out, altcoins, as well as permission chains like Hyperledger Fabric, Sawtooth. The only requirements is that we need to support the elliptic curves that that blockchain uses, which is a piece of cryptography that is specific to various blockchains. So as long as they support some of the core ones, we can support them and we can do it simultaneously, which is kind of cool. Got it. Well, so you mentioned some of the applications, but let's dig into that. Yeah, absolutely. Use cases. Um, So how are people using your technology right now? Yeah. So how are machines using them? Right. So, you know, it's funny. We get this question a lot because what does machine economy mean? It's a pretty broad kind of broad stroke statement. Uh, we spent time, most of our time in two industries, vertical industries, because we just don't have enough resource to do all of them. The first one is mobility, which is, you know, anything vehicles. So anything with wheels, but really even rail to some degree. And then the other one's in energy. Both of these industries are very fragmented. And so one of my favorite examples is in the energy space. So in the energy space, there is a, um, in the renewable energy space, solar panels, for instance, there is this concept called renewable energy certificates, RECs. Um, RECs are a common incentive. They are a digital asset, um, much like a stock or an option that is a, a unit of value that represents some renewable energy generated. And those can be bought or sold on marketplaces uh, to incentivize people to create renewable energy. It's kind of the inverse of a carbon credit. Well, what happens today is, as it was described to us, we did a proof of concept with uh, IDEO down the street, actually, on Embarcadero. IDEO and NASDAQ and Filament did a uh, proof of concept of what it would look like if a, re- if a solar panel issued its own rec, rather than a human walking up to it, measuring it, looking at their farmer's almanac and saying, this much sunlight falls in this part of this <laughs> the earth this year, and then doing some broad average. Instead, we wanted to actually generate it in real time and have no human involved. This is machine economy, right? Solar panel economy in some ways. So we hooked our sensor up. We did the digital asset generation per kilowatt hour generated. We measured voltage and current and time. And when you have those three, you can create the kilowatt hour. And then we, every kilowatt hour, we would create a digital asset on device cryptographically, basically a token is what it is. And then it would be placed into the NASDAQ private markets marketplace, which was called Link, which is a blockchain-based marketplace. This then let that solar panel sell that in, in immediately after it's generated, and whoever, you know, deployed or, or owns that that solar panel gets paid immediately, like you would get paid for an eBay auction. You're just like, oh, I just got paid for something I was selling, except that it continues to pay. So it's a very cool way to start to automate an entire infrastructure that was very very friction before. That's cool. And you yeah. gave another example. Yeah. So we did one in mobility as well. Okay. So in the vehicle space. Um, 
you've, a lot of people are familiar with the Carfax, right? This is mm-hmm. like a vehicle history. And this is a, a useful platform. In fact, I've used it recently purchasing a vehicle. And it's great because you can kind of see, you know, the history. But you don't really know how much you can trust it because um, it's kind of one of these, like, as long as we grabbed a record that was matched the VIN number, we can tell. Um, we've heard stories, we've been told stories about, for instance, in New York, the Hurricane Sandy issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, entire dealerships got flooded. And instead of the dealers filing insurance claims and thus showing a Carfax record, they just fixed it on their own dime. Mm-hmm. No Carfax record, you know, polished it up, washed it, <laughs> vacuumed it, and then sold it. But the electrical system was basically a lemon at that point. So trust in systems goes both ways. Everyone's always thinking about the owner, the driver of the car being trustworthy or not in a sale. But what about the dealership? What about Volkswagen, right? So Filament uh, is also working with a major OEM right now out of Europe to basically make their vehicles blockchain native. And by extension, they can build entire new products on top of this platform. So this isn't necessarily us selling an end product to a customer, but it would be us enabling vehicles to be natively trustable. So this lets their business units, like in their uh, financial services, build new leasing structures, very long extended warranties because they can see the history of the car. Okay, so we've talked about, you know, you having a few of these false starts and projects that didn't really take off. But part of being a startup is you know, having a limited amount of money and, you know, trying to make the most of it. So how do you guys decide as a team um, what you're going to work on? You know, we were, there was a point in our history between our first and second round of funding where we had eight days of money left, which is terrifying. You know, our head of product, Jake, had just had a baby, his first, you know, his, he and his wife's first baby, three months old. This was his first W-2 job. He'd done contract work for a long time. And so, you know, I'm sitting up at wake at night thinking about like, is he going to get a paycheck after next week? Like that's terrifying as a CEO, you know, it's like, this is your, these are your friends. These are also your team and your employees, but they're also your colleagues. And so I never want to be in that position again. So after we got through that and managed to have some very good support from some investors to get us through that, I swore never to make that happen again. And so, you know, Everyone in our company every week knows the run out of money date at our company because we, we announce it because it needs to be like broadcast. <laughs> we announce all of our finances internally, everything so that everyone knows where we're at, how much money we have in the bank, you know, fundraising, et cetera, because it is so important to keep focused and not follow exciting, you know, science projects that won't lead anywhere. We've done that in the past and it's very dangerous. So no more. But we do share full budgets. And so each team has a budget and we have actuals and we have budgeted. And every week PDFs come out of our accounting system. Posted every week. To, every week. Wow. Posted to Slack and you can look at everyone gets to see everyone else's. But it's like everyone understands that money is not infinite at a startup when you are transparent like that. And we found that it treats your team. I don't even like to call them employees. It treats our team as adults. We've got a certain amount of money. We've got to make this work with the resources we have. So focus, say no to things, say yes to others. And every single time they've risen to the occasion. All right. So speaking of saying yes to some things, you recently came out with this blockchain-enabled chip, I believe, called Blocklet. So tell me a little bit more about that. Blocklet is is the name of the, the economic protocol stack. And again, remember these vertical stacks of like information and data and, you know, trust and, and economics. It's just a it's just a protocol stack which allows machines to be blockchain native if they have the chip on or in them. So we condensed everything down into a single semiconductor, the smallest microcontroller we could use that was still secure. The security is absolutely not negotiable. That's what makes Blocklet trustable. It's what makes it economic because if you don't have that trust, you don't have anything else. And so we had this built into our other products 
as Trojan horses. Um, we took it out of that and just basically purified it into its base form. <laughs> and it turned out to be a little tiny um, ARM Cortex chip with some semiconductor uh, secure enclave within it. And so we built this. And um, right now we're kind of in a hybrid mode where we have other people's silicon wafers inside of our, our packaging and our SOC. And we're driving heavily now towards actually making that VHDL, which is actual semiconductor code, right? To make your own custom integrated circuit, ASIC. So we're running down that path very quickly, but that has become the new fundamental basis of our product line, which has been fantastic because we're now getting more interest now than we did before with the industrial IoT because people want economic capabilities for their like vehicles and trucks and things like that now. So uh, talk me through mm-hmm. that. You have this microchip. Yep. Um, you want to get into people's machines. Right. There are already a ton of machines out there that Indeed. people are using, and they're, you know, um, they've already paid for them. So how do you get the technology onto those machines? Yeah, it's it's the biggest question in the industrial IoT space. At last way we looked, seventy one percent of industrial infrastructure globally across verticals is still disconnected. But it's great. They're assets that were paid for, capital assets. They work fine. They're not going to be replaced. Think of power poles and generators and things we had to have a way to be able to connect to existing infrastructure. Without that, this is a no-go. You can't just greenfield all the new stuff and wait 20 years. You know, It takes five years to get into a vehicle ECU, for instance. Right. So if we wanted to get into, this isn't the case, but if we wanted to get into Ford's cars, then we would have to start talking to them now. And then in 2023, we're in their stuff. Like, that's crazy. That's another lifetime of a startup almost, right? At least a half a lifetime, middle age, we'll call it. And so we had to have ways to work with existing systems in an OEM standpoint, they may want to extend a warranty for 10 years instead of five. And they would sell that as a product to their customer who owns the car. And so next service check comes in, Hey, would you like the ultra extended warranty for however many, much money? And we'll cover bumper to bumper for 10 years. Um, if they sign it and sell it, then they plug our device in. Now they can track everything that's happened on that car from performance history to service history, to accidents, to floods, because we have a humidity sensor and, and barometric pressure sensor in the in the device. We can track all that in a blockchain that is immutable and unchangeable by even the service center, by even the OEM. Everyone has to play by the same rules with this, which is the benefit, because then they can go back and actually build these new products and the company, the, the customer does not have to trust the OEM to abide by the warranty which is where a lot of problems happen in the warranty space. So so this trust platform really lets these other companies start to build their own products on top of it, which is the thing we missed before. We were trying to sell the end customer before, and now this is allowing us to just build the platform on which they build their products. All right, so yeah. one thing I'd love to ask everybody on the podcast is, what's one controversial opinion you have that you hold very strongly? Cryptocurrencies will replace fiat currency. It's just a matter of time. Okay, so what what leads you to believe that? <laughs> Because they're more efficient, they're cheaper. Um, fiat currency was a necessary requirement for economics to work for the last several 5,000 years, 10,000 years, modern human history. But it's it's got its own troubles. And it's actually, I mean, where are we seeing it now? It costs more to create pennies than the pennies are worth, right? I think it's like, what, four or five cents per penny or something like that. The federal mint is running at a loss just to make the money. Not to mention how to transact and how to keep it. Cryptocurrencies, I'm not necessarily saying that governments will go away or federal reserves will go away, but they'll all move over to cryptocurrencies at some point. It'll become the de facto standard because it works so well for that. Not a lot of people like that and not a lot of people are comfortable with that. People also thought the fax machines wouldn't go away. 
and here we are today, right? So fax machines still exist in the healthcare space, but we're essentially post-fax now in many ways. We have email, we have Snapchat, we have pictures and text messages, MMS, et cetera. I think companies like R3 are trying to do exactly this in the financial space, and I think they're seeing some some um, uptake with that. So I don't know. It's controversial. I might be wrong. I'm often wrong, but... We'll see. So, so just curious. I don't, I don't mean to make you be targeted for hackers or anything, but uh, yes. but are you an early Bitcoin millionaire? Are you? Like I am not people? a Bitcoin millionaire. <laughs> I, uh, I I am one of those people who was really excited about it and then did nothing with it. So, yeah, I'll be the first to admit that I made. Well, I let me rephrase. Um, I made enough money in cryptocurrency, Bitcoin specifically, and Ethereum to pay for IVF for having a baby with my spouse and myself. So. To me, that's probably the, the best thing I could have done with that. And that's a pretty expensive endeavor. It's usually on the order of, you know, ten to twenty thousand dollars. But that to me, so you know, I don't know if we have to name our child with some sort of weird middle name like Ledger or something, but it's <laughs> the truth is is that we did do I did make enough to do that. So I don't think that's a millionaire move at all. Um it certainly isn't. But it was important to me and we you know, my first Bitcoin I bought was at a hundred dollars. I gave a friend one hundred dollar bill and then I asked him, How do you transfer this Bitcoin to me? Because I don't know how this works. This was 2011, 10, I guess, 11, okay. or was it was when it was a hundred dollars. And so I was actually a little bit later to the Bitcoin game than most. Okay. So if you weren't working on filament, yeah. um, and if you weren't in this space of industriality and blockchain and connecting all the things, um, what would you be doing? Oh, that's such a good question. I have a list of things that I'm always interested in doing. I'm so assuming that money was no object or that I didn't have to continue to have a Income. I'm super fascinated with what's happening in the machine learning space as it um, relates to music composition and music creation. So the Google TensorFlow team has this sub-project called Magenta um, that basically can listen to songs or read the music from the sheet music and then generate new compositions that are in that style. To me, that's magical. And I'm a big fan of music. I'm, I like to compose and play music. I'm totally an amateur, but I enjoy it. It's kind of my second thing. And um, I believe very strongly that I would like more people to experience the joy of creating music. And, but many people are like, I don't know how to play an instrument, or I don't understand music theory. And that's fine, because you kind of need that. But at the same time, if there was a tool or an assistant, if you will, I dare not use the term prosthetic, but like if there's some sort of helper that could assist someone into noodling around and starting to find something that they like and to get that joy of like listening, changing it, and it's feedback loop. Um, that's really fascinating to me. Now there's probably no business there at all. That's to be clear, it'd be a hobby. Um, but I would probably go down that road. Okay. It's hard for me not to be skeptical of machine learning oriented I know. art creation. I know. I love looking at like, I, I fed a bunch of scripts into this machine learning algorithm yeah. and this is the, the trashy script that it spat back <laughs> at me. Yeah, um, like, like movie scripts and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's there. It's, it's comical right now. Right. Yeah. It really is. Um, I'm with you. I, I also, it's kind of sad in some ways cause it feels like it's one of the last human things we have. And, um, and I appreciate that. But at the same time, if it helps humans be more human, then I'm not sure it's a bad thing. Kind of like glasses or pacemakers. I'm not mm-hmm. sure. I don't know. It's a very good point you make. What does the future look like if, you know, filament becomes widely adopted or ubiquitous? It's a future where there are like four different avenues of transactions. Today, we have humans and humans. We pay each other dollars or PayPal or Stripe or Apple Pay or whatnot. This future where filaments devices allow the machines to participate lets humans pay humans again, not really using our product, but 
they continue to do so. Humans can then pay machines. Machines can pay humans. And most interestingly, machines can pay machines. So now you have like four avenues, four routes, if you will, which um, is a future that excites us because there's so much friction. Um, this is getting a little bit idealistic, but um, there is so much waste that occurs in the consumerist society. And I don't think it's purposeful necessarily. It just tends to be, you could argue a necessary evil. You could argue a lack of optimization problem, whatever. But um, when you don't have to pay once for a device anymore and you can start to introduce a sharing economy concept to even smaller things, even like handheld tools or other small things, you don't need to own anymore to have the benefit of the thing because the, the maker of the thing can continue to be paid for the thing through these alternative means. And to me, that's exciting because it reduces landfill waste. It's, dare I say, gets us too closer to a post-consumer society, not necessarily bad things. And as, as we start to inch closer to you know population issues, um, it's probably a good thing to start thinking about that now, to be you know responsible humans and to think about where we live and how we live together as a society. So it is somewhat idealistic, I recognize, but I do believe that the filament platform allows for this possibility. Now, will people do it? Will people make it? I don't know. I don't get to control people, and I'm glad about that. But we do want to provide at least an opportunity for those who want to move into a perhaps a sharing or, or a sharing economy with their products um, to do so if they wish, but don't have the means to do so today. So I would like our chip in every single thing that exists. Um, that's a grand statement, but we'll start with vehicles. All right. Well, Allison, thank you very much for joining us here today. It's been great. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And thank you for listening to What's Next. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. Just search for What's Next on your app of choice or go to samsungnext.com slash podcast. We'll have another episode in two weeks and we'll be talking about blockchain all over again. So be sure to tune in for our conversation with Mitch Liu and Wes Levitt from Sliver TV and Theta Labs. I'm your host, Ryan Lawler. And this episode of What's Next was produced by Rachel King and Janaki Mehta with Claire Mullen as sound engineer for Pod People. If you have questions or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. And Samsung Next is always on the hunt for brilliant new companies to partner with. You can find us on Twitter at Samsung Next, or you can shoot us an email at podcast at samsungnext.com. Until next time.